I would say woke up to this point has won the day. It's part of the establishment. Corporations have adopted it now. I I actually thought that humor would win out in the end, but uh, it is remarkably resistant to criticism. And again, like the Maoist youth that rebelled in the 60s against their elders for not being uh, radical enough, these people have are merciless and they have no sense of humor. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, John Rick MacArthur. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back on. The last time I had you on the pod was in August 2019. I talked to you in New York City, where you publish Harper's Magazine and do lots of your own writing as well, of course. And in some ways, that was an entirely different era. It was BC before COVID, before the shutdowns and lots of the craziness that we're all just coming through now. So I want to really talk to you about whether you think things have changed, whether you think the problems of our culture have worsened or improved over those few years in in the post-COVID, post-lockdown era. I guess I want to start off with a broad question about the state of American politics. So when you and I were talking in 2019, the general take among liberal voices in America was that Trump had to go. That was the only way in which you could save the world, save the United States, save the Republic, was by expelling Trump from the White House. And you would have heard that both from the usual suspects, the kind of slightly hysterical wing of the anti-Trump lobby who thought he was Hitler 2.0, and that if he stayed around, there would be all sorts of global mayhem. But you also heard it from more sensible liberal voices, even from anti-woke liberal voices, progressive liberal voices, whose argument was that the presence of this oaf in the White House was exacerbating kookiness on the left because they were reacting so strongly to his uh, right-wing authoritarianism and his populism. So across the board, the idea was get Trump out and we'll be okay. Has that turned out to be the story? Is American politics better now than it was? And do we really live in a Biden era Or is it the post-Trump era where we're still feeling the ramifications of that strange populist experiment? Well, I firmly believe that things are worse. Uh, I voted against Trump. I mean, it's the first time I've made one of those practical votes that people always pressured me to make and I would never make. I voted for Biden on the theory that um, uh, if it went to the Supreme Court, the justices might take into consideration the popular vote. Uh, remember, in our our country, it's state, it's the electoral college is crazy, and in New York State, uh, there was no question that Biden was going to win easily. So I could have had the luxury of voting for uh, whatever third party candidate I wanted uh, as a protest against Biden, but I didn't because I thought, yeah, all all of the, all of the things being equal it would be better not to have Trump in the White House because he's a, he, it's been explained to me by a, an eminent psychologist, uh, Robert J. Lifton, that Trump is a solipsist. He's not a narcissist. He's a solipsist. His only reference is self-reference. He's only able to see the world through his own uh, uh, reflection of himself, whereas as a narcissist wants to be loved, want, cares about what other people think about them, there's a great deal of self-love also, but he's dangerous on that level. Um, but in terms of the body politic, 
I think we're worse off uh, because there is no competition whatsoever. There's just, I'm for Trump or I'm against Trump. I'm Trump or I'm not Trump. Biden's only campaign platform is, I'm not Trump. And um, (laughs) that inevitably leads to an impoverishment of the political debate. He has also uh, very astutely, I, I wrote a piece about this for The Spectator, of course, Biden is not gaga or, or out of it. He's still a professional politician and knows how to kill off his enemies. And he has killed off Bernie Sanders. Uh, he is uh, together with Joe Manchin. Everybody blames this one senator from West Virginia for blocking all the progressive legislation that Sanders wanted to pass national health insurance, uh, you know, Medicare for all, we call it, increase the minimum wage, uh, uh, cuts in the defense budget, surtax on billionaires, whatever, uh, all blamed on Manchin when, in fact, uh, Biden was working and the Senate leader, Charles Schumer, were working with Manchin and they have effectively destroyed the Sanders movement, which was the only ideological competition uh, going in the United States besides the far right, because there is a far right with with a voice in this country. So um, if you think about the body politic as something that has to be nourished on a daily basis, not every four years or every uh, two years, uh, you have to say that the body politic is desperately ill. And Sanders, uh, sad to say, has buzzled himself. He doesn't, you know, he, his position is, Trump is so awful, so evil, that I can't say anything against Biden, and I can't entertain the thought of another run for the presidency, or I can't encourage some other younger insurgent to compete with Biden because that would help Trump, and I can't do that as a a matter of conscience. Okay, that's his position, but it's very bad for the country, very bad, not to have a discussion and have an argument. Yeah, that's a very good leaping off point for some of the things I want to ask you about. And I bet just staying with Biden and what is Biden all about? I I, agree, I really agree with you that he's not as gaga as people say. I think there's a lot of focus on his age and his instability, which overlooks the fact that he is still, he can still be a ruthless operator. And if there are problems with him, I would argue that they are political rather than in psychological. So it's worth thinking about that. But I did want to talk to you about how some of the problems of wokeness, which is a really not a particularly helpful phrase, although I do think people instinctively understand what what you're talking about when you say it, you know, political correctness or uh, an irrational turn against freedom of speech and, and reason thinking and the ideal of equality, the kind of irrational uh, rejection of those things by a new, often quite angry political group. I want to talk to you about the worsening of wokeness under Biden and and, and how we might explain that. So in the run up to the 2020 presidential election, Yasha Munk in The Atlantic famously said, "If, if you hate wokeness, you should vote for Joe Biden. So there was this idea that voting for Biden would bring politics back to normality. You wouldn't have the craziness of Donald Trump, the narcissism of the Trump regime, and you also would sideline the cranky behavior of certain sections of the woke left. And I think that was that was a tiny bit reflected in the brilliant letter that you guys at Harper's published on your letter on justice and open debate, which was one of the most important critiques of cancel culture 
that has been written uh, in recent years. And that was signed by lots of well-known writers and thinkers, including J.K. Rowling. And I agree with every word of the letter, but there was one part that did jump out at me a little bit, which was this idea that the problem of wokeness and cancel culture was in some ways the resistance against Trump hardening into its own form of dogma. And uh, there was an undertone slightly to a couple of those sentences, I thought, which suggested that if we fix the Trump problem, we might start to fix the cancel culture problem. It didn't explicitly say that, but there was kind of a hint at that. And I've seen other people make that argument much more explicitly. But it, it hasn't quite worked out that way, has it? The editor here at Spike, Tom Slater, referred to him as the first woke president. If you look at the shift from the idea of equality to equity, or Biden's acceptance of the idea that Dylan Mulvaney is literally a girl, is literally a woman. Um, His embrace of some of those kind of dangerous ideologies. Do you think those problems of wokeness have worsened over the past few years rather than improving? Well, I had moments where I hoped that the the wave had passed and it was it was or it was ebbing anyway. And and every time I've had that thought, some new horror has taken place. And one of the horrors is Ron DeSantis. I mean, the, the, Ron DeSantis is Trump's main rival for the Republican nomination, the governor of Florida. And he's running to the right of Trump on civil liberties. In other words, he's, he's just as bad as the wokes on book banning and so on and so forth. Uh, and he's taken all the air out of the rational opposition to woke, which I hope I represent, and, and inflated it with this strange, fake populist, fake uh, democratic position uh, w- where he purports to be defending ordinary people from, from evil left-wingers. When in fact, I mean, DeSantis hasn't got enough publicity that he was a, a military prosecutor in Iraq and in Guantanamo, and he was, uh, you know, merciless. I mean, he, there's there's evidence that he he ridiculed prisoners who were suffering, who who begged for mercy. He laughed in front of them. We published a, a document we think uh, supports that. So, one of the main arguments against woke in the rational world, in the rational set, is what we call due process. You're guaranteed due process under law, under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which means broadly speaking, a fair shake in court. Uh, but I like to think that the um, uh, due process extends beyond the courtroom and goes into disciplinary hearings at universities where a, a, a kid is accused of rape or of sexual harassment or whatever and sh- should be given the right to, to cross-examine or bring a lawyer, things like that, uh, uh, to, the, to the disciplinary hearing, which they're not allowed to do at most universities. And so DeSantis is no more a friend of uh, due process than he is of gays and, uh, and terrorists. Uh, he's terrible. So woke and Biden's excuses for woke or his papering over of what's wrong with woke uh, has helped DeSantis immensely. There's really not a hell of a lot more to his campaign right now than anti-Walt Disney Company. Uh, and part and parcel of that anti-woke. I'm going to save you from woke. So uh, much as I'd like 
to make common cause with a right winger on on uh, on woke uh, or on my opposition, my critique of woke. Uh, this is not the guy I would choose as my ally. And I would say Biden and is is waffling on this has has opened the field completely to, to DeSantis to run amok, to run wild. Are you looking to get into journalism? Are you passionate about Spike's pro-freedom, pro-democracy politics? Then we've got the internship program for you. Spiked is offering paid placements for six months for aspiring writers, editors, podcasters, and video makers. You have until the 16th of June to apply. Successful applicants will start work in July in Spiked's offices right here in London. Find out more about the internship program and how to apply by visiting spiked-online.com slash interns. That's spiked-online.com slash interns. That's a, a very interesting point. And I, I guess one thing I would want to ask you in relation to that is, so, so given your description of Ron DeSantis, I, I might have a slightly more favorable view of Ron DeSantis than you do. But g- given what you've said, I want to ask you, who is fundamentally responsible for Ron DeSantis's ability to make hay from the from opposing wokeness. So, for example, in the state of Florida, uh, where where he's governor, of course, and if you look at what he's doing in terms of challenging the idea that school teachers should speak to very young children about sex, about gender identity, about lots of these confusing ideas, brilliantly exposed by someone like Lips of TikTok, which <laughs> shows us the kind of zaniest teachers one could imagine who are telling kids about they them's and all that sort kind of thing. It isn't Ron DeSantis, and I guess people like Christopher Rufo as well, who's very well known as an activist against critical race theory and the teaching of some of those theories in schools. DeSantis and Rufo both have authoritarian instincts, which does worry me quite a lot. They are in some ways, especially Rufo, I think, is a bit of a mirror image of the woke set on campus, except he wants to censor and no platform slightly different things. But isn't this fundamentally a failing of the enlightenment left or the reasoned left to to defend these values and they're allowing these people to to come in and do that absolutely absolutely don't get me wrong i i i probably am overstating my distress about desantis because sometimes desantis sounds reasonable i mean personally i i i draw the line on um gender uh conversion among underage kids i mean because what you're doing is you're you're giving the state and the, and the legal system, and I guess to some extent doctors, the right to endorse self-mutilation. And I, I definitely draw the line there. Uh, if somebody wants to, to self-mutilate or do a sex change when they're 25, that's another story. Uh, but if they want to do it when they're 14 or 15, I think, you know, the adults have to come in and call a halt to that, have to stop it. So, and DeSantis is able to talk about that. So the other, the big thing in New York right now is, uh, can public schools have drag queens reading stories to children? I think I'd draw the line there too. Why should you make a point of having drag queens read stories to little kids? I mean, it's 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 weird. I mean, it's confusing and it's upsetting. And um, I also wouldn't endorse having a. Uh, uh, Ron DeSantis <laughs> read stories to children. Actually, at this at this point, but it's it's the debate on this level is so primitive, so stupid, that again, it gives people like DeSantis the room to look reasonable. Um, 
I still am more concerned with the due process issues. I mean, I've just recently written about, you know, still the, the, the story really hasn't been told fully on what happened to the senator from Minnesota, Al Franken, the former uh, comedian who got himself elected senator from Minnesota. It was a very effective liberal senator. They brought out pictures of him clowning around with a woman who was asleep as if he was going to grab her breasts, things like that. And people started uh, attacking him for uh, allegedly sexist remarks and so on and so forth. And he was driven out of the Senate by one of my senators, Kristen Gillibrand from New York, who's just an awful, awful person, really should not be this, should not be an elected representative uh, from any state. Uh, but the treatment, what she subjected Franken to and the, the, the bums rush they gave him, you know, riding him out of town on a rail uh, with no due process is just an absolute outrage. I, I criticized it at the time, but I realized that even when I criticized it, uh, I kind of said, yeah, well, he was boorish and so on and so forth. He was he was insensitive. And I kind of accepted some of the assumptions of his attackers. But he did nothing comparable to what Gillibrand did to him. Nothing. Mm. Nothing rises to the level of the cruelty and the unfairness of what Kirsten Gillibrand did to, to Al Franken. And, and lots of people now say they regret it. Senators say they shouldn't have voted or, or pressured him to leave office and so on and so forth. Um, these are big issues that have not been fully discussed. They've been fully vetted. Angela Brand is still in the Senate. She's running for re-election with the full support of Charles Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, her co-senator from New York, and I'm sure of Biden. You know, but there's no competition for woke. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure if you asked her directly, do you think you were unfair to Franken? She would still say no. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the cruelty of the moment, because it is worth reminding ourselves of that. I think one of the things you and I spoke about last time was the fallout from the Me Too movement. Now, Me Too doesn't roll off the tongue as naturally as it would have done a few years ago. It's slightly fizzled out or it, or it takes different forms than it might have done in the past. But it is worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, of, of the extent to which lives and reputations and careers were destroyed sometimes on the basis of a pointed finger, on the basis of an accusation. And, you know, it, it brings to mind that line from The Crucible, is the word of the accuser holy now? And it was holy in that period. It was the thing that could determine your fate. There were many instances of that. And it, it was another example, I think, of the insufficient pushback from the left and from those who you think would defend due process and defend the principles of justice. Harper's obviously uh, made some very important critiques of, of the elements, some of that culture. Um, Margaret Atwood made a few comments and a few other uh, voices, often amongst older feminists, particularly in Europe, particularly in France. There were lots of older women. Catherine Deneuve was one of them and, and a few others who just said, what is this hysteria amongst young women who want to bring down men for sometimes what would have been considered minor uh, incursions into someone's private space in the past. Um, are we still living in the overhang from the Me Too culture? Do you, do, you, or do you think Me Too was a manifestation of a general sweeping culture of cruelty that hasn't quite gone away? 
Absolutely. And it's 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 now encrusted in the in the it's part of the establishment. Corporations have adopted it now uh, uh, for advertising purposes. I mean, that's well known. I mean, it's people a lot of people have written about that with irony, with a sense of irony. You know, it's some of the excesses of woke occasionally get ridiculed. But you ultimately, I mean, uh, Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle they haven't won the day. I, I actually thought that humor would win out in the end, but uh, neither one of them. I mean, they've survived. They're still they still have careers, but um, they haven't reversed this horrible, horrible, stultifying trend of humorless. And I'm glad we're talking about cruelty uh, and cruelty uh, towards the alleged perpetrators and you know, somebody like me, I can I can defend myself. I've got a I've got a public uh, a platform from which to defend myself. But in, uh, you know, the assistant professor of sociology at uh, at uh, you know whatever uh, state university doesn't have any anything. What he's got is the or she's got in some cases is the assistant dean for diversity. You know, and they keep hiring. They keep staffing up at universities that keep hiring more and more diversity uh, deans or the police. They're supposed to enforce woke uh, ideology and very chilling to free speech and independent thought and to protest. Uh, If you have tenure at a university, I have a friend, um, I just was on the, talking to him yesterday, Laurent Dubreuil at Cornell. uh, And he was talking about the they're all delighted because um, uh, Bill Maher, the uh, comedy show host, uh, has come up with this um, Golden Testicles Award, which he gives to people who have stood up to woke. And he just gave it to the president of Cornell, a woman who, when a group of students asked for uh, trigger warnings in a systematic way or something like that, uh, uh, she said, no, you're, supposed, you're coming to university to be opened up to new ideas and exposed to danger, what you might consider dangerous concepts and so on. No, I will not systematically put trigger warnings or labels on course courses, coursework or, um, or syllabus uh, selections and so on. Um, so that's a step in the right direction. But I can tell you, Laurent is still in a tiny minority at Cornell. Uh, of people who really stand up to the kind of uh, orthodoxy that led to, and I keep coming back to Al Franken's defenestration. Now, we're going to have a piece in our, I can't give it away now, but in the July issue, we're going to have a major piece on woke by a major victim of woke, an innocent victim of woke. Uh, And I'm not mentioning their name right now. (laughs) Sorry for the pronoun uh, avoidance, but... um, I'll be very curious to see how people respond to it. Um, uh, but I would say woke up to this point has won the day and it is remarkably resistant to criticism. Uh, and again, like the Maoist youth that rebelled in the sixties against their elders for not being uh, radical enough, these people have are merciless and they have no sense of humor. I just I just wrote about it uh, again in the Spectator. The whole debate about Qatar and whether or not people should go to the World Cup and watch the games 
uh, or enjoy them or cover them, given how bad the Qatari uh, human rights and labor record is. Uh, and I write about this uh, this writer, Ben Moser, I should name names here and, start, and not be so polite, who was interviewed by Simon Cooper in the, in the Financial Times. And Moser's argument was crazy. He compared the harassment of gays in, in uh, Qatar, which according to Cooper and according to other journalists is official, but not draconian. He compared it to, to the, the non-reaction among right-thinking people to this horror of discrimination in Qatar was comparable uh, to um, forced child labor, uh, putting kids in cages and forcing them to work in garment factories. How would you feel if that was going on? And the the moral equivalency is insane. It's idiotic. But people like Ben Moser make these comparisons that the harassment of homosexuals is equivalent to putting children in cages and forcing them to work work in factories. When you're on this kind of a a level of, of, I don't know, immaturity or stupidity, it's very hard to to have a conversation, to have a rational conversation. And when I bring up due process, at least when I brought it up, just the concept of due process in the Constitution with, with radical wokes, and I'm talking about two, three years ago, they'd say, well, it's like the French Revolution. You know, some heads have to roll. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the... Um the difficulty of having a conversation, because that's something I've noticed, you know, throughout modern political history, there have always been incredibly heated discussions, extraordinary conflict, great tension in society. But the opposing camps generally knew what each other was talking about and were generally able to engage with ideas at a common level. And that is increasingly difficult these days. You almost feel like you're speaking a different language to some of the people on the other side. So I wanted to ask you precisely about the issue of language and how key the manipulation of language is to the enforcement of woke ideology and the obliteration of even the possibility of dissent, never mind the act of dissent. So you wrote a a brilliant piece in The Spectator recently about woke language in the US and how it tends to trickle around the world. And you gave some uh, just brilliant, beautiful examples like the University of Southern California School of Social Work, which uh, has banned the use of the term the field to refer to the world outside the classroom because the field might have connotations for descendants of slavery. You also refer to the Associated Press example where they advised um, not using the word the in a dehumanizing way, for example, the poor, the French as if French people are running around in a state of distress, if anyone says the French. Um, And uh, there are lots of other examples too, which on the surface can look crazy, and lots of people do laugh at them. You, you, You even point out that even the New York Times has made fun of some of these examples. But the manipulation of language, the changing of language, is a really important part of this process, isn't it? Because it limits, especially amongst younger generations who are socialized into this new way of speaking, it actually limits what they can think and how they can act on the world if they have a very limited terminology for understanding things. Yes. And I, um, by the way, I don't want to be, make you think that your listeners think that I was being too polite to the New York Times. So the New York Times 
uh, went along with, yes, uh, banning the French is going a little bit too far. But they didn't have seem to have any problem with banning other things like the poor. They just thought it was funny that the French were angry that they had been included in this style change at the Associated Press. But on the on the on the more fundamental question of language, what I'm really horrified by is the obliteration of literary and historical memory. And I mean, it's very heavy handed. I, you know, at a certain point in my life, I got a little sick of George Orwell, St. George, <laughs> and especially around the, the time of the invasion of Iraq. I was horrified by Christopher Hitchens uh, employment of Orwell to justify any horrible thing that we did in Iraq. And Orwell should be remembered at least for inventing the term newspeak uh, in 1984. And we are living in a new uh, culture of newspeak. Newspeak being the, the language that the 1984 government, which is, we assume, is a kind of ultra totalitarian communist uh, uh, state, to to change the meaning of every word. In other words, or to create compound words that create a new meaning, all in the, the name of propaganda and in intimidating an oppressed population. And this is really becoming the case here. Uh, uh, we're, we're not, obviously, at the point of 1984. Uh, but, you know, you look at some of the, uh, the, the way people talk now, I, I have to assume they don't assign 1984 uh, or Animal Farm in the, in the public schools anymore. I, you know, we all had to read it when I was in, I don't know, from seventh to 10th grade, we had to read these books. So everybody was familiar with the terms. Uh, I haven't come up with a new, with a woke speak uh, metaphor. I, I have to think about that. But there is a kind of woke speak that has now infected the language. Simultaneously, and it was in the Wall Street Journal today, is a headline, eighth grade scores in history, civics hit record low. You have an illiteracy among younger people younger students, and I see it also in older older kids and, and people in their 20s and 30s, and even in their 40s, they don't seem to have any historical memory of what came before woke. And for this, I blame, again, projects like the 1619 Project of the New York Times Magazine. It's done an immense amount of damage to the culture. The 1619 Project positing that the, 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 the colonization project of America was founded on racist principles designed to expand slavery. Now, uh, an oversimplification to say the least, uh, but it metamorphosed into this despairing view of the country that, that eliminated the entire, really eliminated the abolitionist movement, which actually predated Jamestown. And eliminated people like, you know, great Americans like Frederick Douglass. Nobody knows who Frederick Douglass was anymore because the, he's, he's the freed slave who became a leading abolitionist and one of our great rhetoricians and, and sort of public figures, public citizens before and after the Civil War. And um, nobody talks about him because Woke and the 1619 Project have eliminated him as an important character in the abolition of slavery. He doesn't count. What's the point of discussing Fred Frederick Douglass and the antecedents to the Civil War if we're still a fundamentally, hopelessly racist society 
that was founded on principles of racism. So you don't get to learn about Frederick Douglass, which is one of the reasons that the eighth grade kids don't know anything about history. That presumably there's other huge areas that they're not being uh, instructed in. And I would say that the woke people or the woke ideology, like the 1984 ideology, wants to eliminate all the subtleties, all the complexities, all the divergent streams of history in order to promote one ideology. The war on historical consciousness is such a concerning element of of contemporary culture. We have it here in the UK as well, not quite explicitly as the 1619 Project, but we do have it here too, this attempt to depict British history as just a litany of crimes, nothing else, and something that we must atone for constantly in our daily lives. And I think people underestimate how violently that tears the citizen from a sense of belonging to his or her own society. And I wanted to ask you about how some of those ideas played out in America over the past few years. So, of course, another big thing that happened since you and I last spoke in 2019 was the um, BLM riots of 2020. And for me, the most striking image from those riots, I think it was in Portland, where a statue of George Washington was torn down and it was spray painted with 1619. And I thought it was such a telling moment because 1776 doesn't matter anymore. America is no longer founded in revolutionary ideals or the ideals of democracy and freedom. It is instead a a country born from the sin of slavery, born from the sin of racism. And you see that racial fatalism quite a lot in contemporary discussion in America. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a good example of it, but there are other examples too where racism is seen as the original sin. And it's, it's openly referred to as the original sin. During 2020, the summer of 2020, there was a piece in Slate magazine which referred to the original sin of America being uh, racism and slavery. Um, that racial fatalism and that turn against the dynamic conscious creations that took place in American history, that tells us something more broad about the the pessimism of our times, doesn't it? Yes. Although I think a lot of this is, and I'm giving away a little bit of the piece we're going to publish in July, it, it speaks to the Protestant, the merciless Protestant roots of the United States. And, and that is a real problem. That's a, an ongoing problem. And, and it did uh, have a lot to do with prohibition. It did have a lot to do with McCarthyism. And I think it does have a lot to do with woke. I'm not saying anything original here, but it's going to be elaborated in this this piece I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, I come back, there's wonderful paradoxes about this. I'm sure, again, they're not teaching the eighth grade kids uh, in, in American public schools that, that slaves fled uh, colonial era plantations to join the British army and General Coburn um, in, in also in, in 1812, in the War of 1812, because they guaranteed, it guaranteed their freedom. I mean, the British can't be fundamentally racist and also be, I mean, it's interesting to know that the British were, were um, a colonial power that oppressed the colonists, but also attracted fleeing slaves uh, who were trying to escape slavery uh, from George Washington and so on and so forth. These are all interesting things that are not being taught. That's one paradox, but you're also not allowed to learn about the other paradox. Without Thomas Jefferson, there could not have been an Abraham Lincoln. 
Okay, that's I, that's something I firmly believe, and I've thought about a lot and written about a lot. Lincoln was absolutely uh, monumentally moved by Jefferson's writing, and what, by what Jefferson stood for. The fact that Jefferson owned slaves does not uh, delete uh, his his thinking or his influence on Lincoln. Does anybody talk about that anymore? When when they removed the Jefferson statue from the New York City Council Chambers uh, last year, year and a half ago, did anyone in our enlightened uh, left intelligentsia stand up and point out the influence that Jefferson had on on Lincoln? No, I didn't see it. I didn't see it anywhere. I mean, I might have said it to somebody, but I and I may have I've written it in a book, but I didn't see anybody say, wait a minute. Yes, Jefferson had limitations, and but his thinking and his writing led to to uh, abolition in certain states. Uh, Washington was a complicated person. Yes, it's true he did not free his slaves during his lifetime, but he did free them after he died. Uh, he put it in his will that they were were to be freed after he died. They belonged to his wife, so he, he actually didn't have the right to free them uh, uh, while he was alive. But these are all complicated, paradoxical uh, uh, facts and information that informs history and informs political analysis that the ordinary person is being deprived of now. Ta-Nehisi Coates is now the, uh, maybe I don't want to overstate it, but he's, a, he's, a, he's more important in the way Americans think about racism and race and slavery, I think, than... Um, than any any mainstream uh, academic historian that I can think of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I I think the the attempted cancellation of Thomas Jefferson to me was just one of the most horrendous things that happened in recent years. And there was also you mentioned the statue being taken down, but there was also the there was an elementary school I think in New Jersey that was called the Thomas Jefferson School, which renamed itself. I mean, just shameful, um, Ill historically illiterate behavior. And of course, if you look at the pre-Tanahisi Coates uh, uh, writers, uh, all the way from Frederick Douglass to James Baldwin to Martin Luther King, an argument they continually made was that the seeds of black freedom lay in the documents that America was founded on. They lay in the arguments made by people like Jefferson. They understood the complexity of American history and wanted to harness it for the liberation of more people. And they were literate, literary people. I mean, Martin Luther King is one of my heroes. And, and one of the reasons he's my hero is because he was a, he was a man of letters. He was a good writer, a very, very good writer. Martin Luther King, I have really combed the historical literature and I've had other people research it for me. I cannot find an example of Martin Luther King ever denouncing a statue, a Confederate statue in this or that former Confederate capital. Now, I don't think Martin Luther King approved of having monuments to, to a racist Confederacy. I think he just thought it was beside the point. It was not important enough to him. Uh, uh, he, he preferred to talk about the ideals embodied in the Constitution and the Declaration of in Independence being betrayed by generation after generation of, of, uh, of our political classes. But he didn't go around tilting its at uh, symbols. And 
you know, I'm not going to say I think it's a terrible thing that they 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 tore down the or they took down the uh, monuments in Richmond, Virginia, to all the Confederate generals. However, I do think some of them should stay up as historical objects so that people can see them and discuss uh, what they were about. I mean, they just did it right in my neighborhood in New York. They took down the the statue of Teddy Roosevelt, the, the founder of the Museum of Natural History, because Roosevelt was a terrible racist. And he's up on a horse. I don't know if you've, people may have seen this picture. He's on a horse and there's a, a Native American on one side. And I think, uh, I forget who's on the other side. And yes, it looks kind of imperialist and it looks kind of, uh, if you think about it, it looks, I guess, it looks kind of racist because it, it puts him in a, in a superior position um, uh, and he's sitting and there standing. But uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a, in many ways a great progressive um, and he was far more progressive than Woodrow Wilson who followed him uh, and more tolerant and um, there were a lot of things wrong with him. But one of the things that was right about him was that he was, uh, uh, I think he believed more in equal justice uh, for most Americans than some of his predecessors and some of the people in his own party. Uh, um, and he was a great naturalist. He was a great believer in defending the environment. I mean, I think um, Teddy Roosevelt, if he were alive today, he'd, he'd be the wokest of the climate, climate change activists. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, we've had um, similar statue controversies here in the UK. The, the famous tearing down of the statue of Edward Colston, the, the slaver who, uh, in Bristol, There's a long-running campaign to take down the statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oxford University because of his colonial behaviours. And what's very striking about some of those endeavours to remove those statues is that it's not even justified on political terms. I mean, there are many moments in history where you have a shift from one political era to the next, and it's often accompanied by the removal of certain monuments, the tearing down of certain statues. But these new attacks on public monuments are often justified in therapeutic language. So the students at Oxford who who have a campaign called Roads Must Fall, they describe the statue as an environmental microaggression. So walking past it hurts their feelings, damages their self-esteem, makes them remember the pain of their ancestors. It's almost like they're plundering Uh, the pain of their forefathers in order to fortify themselves with a sense of victimhood in the 21st century. And there's a very therapeutic 
dynamic here. So it, it further feeds into that woke sense that, that it's not historical, it's not political, but you're in your own universe and you must constantly protect yourself from slight and insult and, and so on. Well, I'm glad you brought up the psychological aspect of it because I left it out of my 1984 uh, uh, example, which is the two-minute hate. Uh, if you've read 1984, you'll know that uh, uh, the uh, every week, I forget what it is, uh, uh, the party, which is the single party that runs the country, that runs whatever wherever country they they live in. Which it is, it is England, right? We all agree that Orwell is describing an England taken over by a mad ideology. Uh, and uh, every every week they have the two minute hate, where everyone has to go into a theater and they project an image of uh, a political rival, an exile named Goldstein who is presumably Trotsky, but he's somebody that everyone can hate together. And they scream and they gesticulate and so on and so forth. And they they work out psychological angst on Goldstein, who is this figure of hate. And the two-minute hate becomes a therapeutic session that, that everybody has to indulge in every week. And these ritual removals of monuments are a kind of two-minute hate. They're not happening exactly on schedule, but everybody gets to hate the Confederacy, the slave-holding South, all over again and feel good about themselves after it's over. Uh, I'm sure everybody, all your listeners know who Glenn Greenwald is. I mean, he's a controversial, uh, I would generally classify him as left-wing critic of American culture, politics, and orthodoxy, including woke. Uh, and uh, uh, he is now become the Goldstein of the United States. Every <laughs> week or two, I hear a new uh, hear about a new attack against uh, Glenn Greenwald that makes him sound like like he's Goldstein, you know. And he's become this. His his great sin, of course, is to appear on Fox News because Fox News is the only place that will let him speak to a national audience because the, the liberal press or the liberal uh, establishment television shows won't have him on. And so he takes what he can get and uh, he's tarred with his association with, uh, with Fox News and he's hated. He's really hated now uh, by all sorts of factions. And that's what he, that's what he makes. I've, I, by the way, I, I committed the terrible sin of going on Tucker Carlson about, oh, I don't know, it's before lockdown. But I went on because it was the only place I could talk about the Democratic Party's uh, and Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren's uh, campaign to bring down the Sanders campaign, the Bernie Sanders campaign. I was very pro Sanders. I was I'm, I was I was for him. I like him. Uh, but only Tucker Carlson, allegedly this right wing monster, would let me get come on TV and talk about the uh, perfidious behavior of the mainstream Democratic Party vis-a-vis the Goldstein of the moment, which was who was Bernie Sanders. He was he became a hate figure for a lot of uh, a lot of establishment Democrats, a friend of Trump. He's going to help Trump. He's going to get Trump elected and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. I I was on Tucker Carlson once uh, because I'd written about a case in Austria where a woman had been convicted in a court of law for being mean and insulting about the prophet Muhammad. And 
I wrote about this. I thought it was a shocking case of uh, uh, the reintroduction of blasphemy law, the punishment of a woman for expressing her views. And Tucker Carlson was the only broadcaster in the US where I was at the time who was willing to talk about that astonishing attack on freedom of speech and freedom of conscience. I can't, I can't, and I just quickly, I can't tell you that I'm not going to tell you their names, but the number of people I know who would not go on Tucker Carlson because their friends, their advisors, their literary agents said, you go on Tucker Carlson, you'll be ruined. Absolutely. Uh, just one more question I wanted to ask you on on language, because uh, I do think this is important. And um, you mentioned trigger warnings earlier on, and you've mentioned Orwell's 1984. It's worth noting that the University of Northampton here in the UK has put a trigger warning on 1984 for its students and it warns them that it contains scenes they might find offensive and upsetting. So, I mean, that is the full circle of, of modern hysteria. Um, but one um, one Goldstein that we have here in the UK is J.K. Rowling. And um, she she's I think she is a heroine of contemporary culture uh, in terms of the, uh, the extraordinary principle she has displayed in standing by her belief in biological sex and her belief in women's sex-based rights. Uh, she's abused and mauled and harassed and threatened with rape and death almost every day. Um, she can withstand it because she's in a fairly privileged position, but it's still, I think, incredibly admirable that she decides to carry on. She obviously signed the letter for for you guys in, in Harper's in 2020 about the problem of cancel culture. Um, I want to ask you, in relation to language, I wanted to ask you about the new speak of trans language, because that does strike me as quite an important moment, actually, especially for the younger generation, who, da- who many of whom do now use terms like cis woman, which is a classic new speak compound word, which is designed not only to say, well, that woman is not trans, but to change how we think about women, to change how we understand what a woman is. Um, and also there are famous, ridiculous terms like chest feeding or birthing parent. And I often think about the impact this might have on those who you mentioned earlier, the people who don't have a consciousness of politics and life before woke. I wonder what impact that language has on those kinds of minds who will come to see the world in a very different way to how people like you and I saw the world and how we understood the world. So in relation to the trans speak... Uh, there's a real problem there, isn't there, in terms of how thoroughly it's reorganizing our understanding of the sexes and the relations between the sexes, and also at the same time unleashing an extraordinary amount of invective against those who refuse to adopt the new speak terms. Well, I mean, certainly the the wokest kids uh, have a lot of friends. I mean, they've got a lot of allies now. I mean, they've got adults uh, aiding and abetting them and defending them. Uh, what this does is it it renders defenseless the, the the kids in between. You know they're they're really defenseless. They don't have any they don't have anybody to talk to. The argument always was that a, a a boy wants to be a girl, a girl wants to be a boy. Can't admit it. Like a gay kid couldn't come out of the closet because they'd be ridiculed. They would be uh, their lives would be ruined and so on and so forth. And it, and to some extent that was to a large extent that was true when we were kids. Uh, now, uh, I'm worried more about the ordinary mainstream kids who have no one to talk to. They can't say to an adult counselor at their school, 
this is kind of awkward. So and so wants to do a sex change, and she or he is only is only fourteen, thirteen years old. What do you think about it? it's it's giving me the creeps? I don't know how to talk to them. I want to say this. I would like to say something to them, but I can't uh, because I know I'll get I'll get trashed. Um, um, so it's it's the, the the kids in the middle I worry about now more than the kids in the minority uh, uh, and. This is not to say that there still isn't all sorts of homophobia and racism and everything you want to you associate with the worst aspects of American culture. Uh, but there's this new class of, uh, I would say, of in-between kids, and it's of all races and, all, and, and both genders, um, that would like to talk about these issues, but there's no forum for them. And certainly you're not going to post something on Twitter, at least not under your own name, saying, you know, uh, I draw the line at self-mutilation or something like that, uh, uh, because you'll get you'll be you'll be you'll be driven off the map or you have to go into exile like Trotsky. <laughs> Where eventually, eventually Stalin catches up with you and kills you, assassinates you. So I am deeply distressed about kids and, and what they, what they have to go through. I've seen my own daughters go through some of these arguments at school and it's intimidating. It's, it's quite intimidating, uh, uh, for a kid who's not either ultra woke on the, on the right side of history or a kid who's not tremendously articulate or hasn't figured out what they really think about these issues, but there's no adults available to talk about it. Or there's Ron DeSantis, (laughs) (laughs) who again, doesn't have a very subtle, uh, uh, approach to these issues. Yeah. I think um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie described that culture incredibly well recently. She talked about the cold, grasping, unforgiving climate that seems to dominate among certain young people, especially, in fact, the well-educated ones on university campuses. And she talked about just the baleful impact it can have on people's social lives and the way they go through every day where they're fearful constantly of saying the wrong thing, of using the wrong term, expressing the wrong idea. And I wanted to ask you about the climate of fear around freedom of speech and around self-expression. You guys published a really good piece by uh, Russell Jacobi a couple of months ago on uh, Salman Rushdie and the climate of fear. Every now and then I suddenly remember that Salman Rushdie was stabbed last year because it is extraordinary. I don't expect it to be in the news every day, but it does feel slightly like it's fading from public memory. And the response to it when it happened, it was on the front page of all the newspapers here in the UK. It was a big story for a few days, for a week or so. There were statements from politicians, although I thought Boris Johnson's statement was a bit wet. And um, some of the other politicians in this country took a very long time to say anything at all, which is extraordinary given Salman Rushdie is a British citizen and a knight of the realm and an important part of British culture and British modern British letters. Um, but it does feel like that the even during when the original fatwa was issued, there was cowardice among sections of the literary elite and the political establishment who were unwilling to stand up for Rushdie. But lots of people nonetheless did stand up for him. But this time around, it feels like there was less of that, doesn't it? It feels like one of the best known writers in the world can be almost murdered, very seriously injured for the crime of writing a book that the Ayatollah of Iran didn't like. And people are almost forgetting about it. 
worse than that. They blame the victim. Uh, I mean, back in the old days, I mean, back, I, I was there. I mean, I, we published, we're the, Harper's Magazine is the only magazine in the world to publish an excerpt of the, the Satanic Verses. We did it in all innocence because the fatwa was declared afterwards and after the riots in Bradford and so on. And, um, and we organized the counterattack. We organized the big, uh, the big reading by, uh, by all these famous writers and so on and so forth. It shamed the booksellers in New York and around the country to put the book back on sale and so on. So I, I've been uh, a, a pro rushdie militant for more than 30 years. And so I was well-placed to notice how muted the reaction was. Here, they got him. Some crazy guy inspired by Islamic fundamentalists actually got him. He, got, he, he, he almost killed him and he took out his eye. He blinded him in one eye. And the response, I would say, in, the, in this country was muted, to, to say the least. The New York Times has still not run an, an institutional editorial denouncing what happened or exploring what's happened. Of course, the Wall Street Journal was, was, was right there. I mean, these are the, the horrible ironies of, of, of what's happening is that the liberal press, which is supposed to defend these values, was quieter than the alleged white right-wing press, which is supposed to be more authoritarian and less interested in individual freedom and so on and so forth. Anyway, um, but it was among the younger people that I was most distressed. Uh, uh, I was most distressed about what I, I perceived as their silence. And this was brought home by a writer. Again, I, I, I can't betray this confidence. Uh, a friend of Rushdie's, who, uh, who I said, are you going to write about this? And are you going to write about the, the, what seems to be the silence surrounding his, uh, his, the assassination attempt? And he says, or the, at least the muted reaction to it, because there was some, some protest. Yeah. Uh, Penn had a small uh, d- demonstration in front of the New York Public Library. Anyway, I asked this guy, are you going to write about it? And are you going to criticize the, 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 the silence? And he said, uh, I just can't in, engage in the culture wars. It's just too exhausting. Uh, I don't see the, it, it just doesn't work for me. I'm just, too, I'm just too exhausted by it. In other words, he, who was a friend of Rushdie's, a, a personal friend of his, uh, very much in solidarity with him, was not going to call out the people who didn't defend Rushdie because he was too exhausted and too read, uh, uh, I think, demoralized by the culture wars, by the woke wars. In other words, and the woke position, the ultra-woke position on Rushdie is uh, that any defense of, of Rushdie had to include a defense of Islamic, the rights of the Islamic minority. Uh, I mean, the is- Islamic minority is not a minority everywhere, for starters. Um, Jacoby points out it's a minority of a billion adherents um, but the, the, the point is, is that, uh, the, the possibility of offending a, a devotee of Islam, uh, was as important in their minds as the defense of, um, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, uh, of a writer who was actually attacked, violently attacked and violently injured. Um, this brings me back to Moser comparing oppressions of gays in Qatar to uh, caged uh, children being forced to work in garment factories. 
there's some disconnect here of morality, I would say. It's not just intellectual. It's, it's some kind of moral failing. And I feel like I need to do more and everybody needs to do more to call out uh, what I consider the fundamental immorality of this. It's not just unprincipled because Rushdie lost his eye uh, and he's got nerve damage in one of his hands. I mean, it's a horror. It's a horror what took place. And there should have been a, you know, when when the um, Islamic fundamentalist uh, assassinated the the, the the editorial staff of Charlie Hebdo in Paris, uh, the entire country just about shut down the next day. And they ran, I don't know how many hours of continuous coverage, which included people doing satires on television to protest Islamic uh, fundamentalist intolerance of satire. In this country, you know, yeah, there was some polite, there was a polite demonstration in front of the New York Public Library, but there was nothing you could call uh, a full-throated uh, defense of freedom of expression because people, uh, uh, woke people, I guess you could say, I, maybe I'm being unfor- unfair to some woke people, don't consider uh, uh, the defense of freedom of expression or freedom of speech to be uh, a civic obligation. In fact, you, you know, you've heard this now that the First Amendment is... Uh, is there to defend white privilege. Yeah, that's very well put. And I think the role that Harper's played in defending Rushdie during the fatwa years was so important. Uh, I mean, and what happened to him last August, I mean, it was an act of barbarism, not only against one man, but against uh, Western civilization, against the idea of freedom of speech. And where is the New York Times on this? They've given up their editorial page to the the columnists. There were a couple of good columns in the New York Times about Rushdie, but nothing that rose to the level of the, your your one sentence there of rhetoric. Uh, you know, there was barbaric. I, I don't remember anybody. You know, if if you read the American press, you'd say, "Well, it was you know, the, the, not reasonable. People can disagree, but uh, it's one religious belief against uh, a secular uh, principle. Not that it was barbaric." It's it's really very distressing. So, I'm the other. My other uh, example is Julian Assange. You know, the mainstream American press will not wholeheartedly defend Assange. The Committee to Protect Journalists, which I used to be on the board of, uh, is the most important mainstream press freedom group in the United States. Does not list Assange as part of their um, imprisoned journalists. He's not on their imprisoned journalist list. He is an imprisoned journalist. He's not a journalist like maybe I am. Uh, uh, he doesn't write for a newspaper. But what he did was exactly the same uh, as what the New York Times did when they published the Pentagon Papers that were leaked to him, leaked to them by, by Daniel Ellsberg. Assange had these documents leaked to him and he put them out for people to judge for themselves. That's that's the work of a journalist. It is a truly extraordinary state of affairs where the one person in prison over the Iraq and Afghanistan calamities are, is the man who said what happened or, rather than the people who made it happen. It really is an extraordinary situation. We're, we're still in pieces all the time at Harbors. We're dependent on things that came from WikiLeaks. One of the pieces we're about to publish has a major WikiLeaks uh, leak in it, uh, which we wouldn't have if it wasn't for Julian Assange. And But there's, there's a general indifference 
to Assange uh, uh, that I think that reminds me of the indifference to Rushdie. So, Rick, I've got one more question for you, um, which is following. We've talked about the counterattack one might launch against the barbarism that hunts down wrong thinkers like Salman Rushdie or the general rise of woke intolerance, the attack on due process. It's incredibly important to push back on all of those things, as you have articulated very well. I want to talk about one of the most important counter blasts of modern years, which is populism. And uh, that's too big a subject for you to address in, in one answer. But I wanted to, I wanted to get your views on, on, on the standing of populism, because I often read obituaries to populism. People will say, you know, when Macron, you know a lot about France, when Macron was elected, there was loads of obituaries. This is the end of populism. He's going to restore European liberal normalcy. Um, we see that all the time, but it's simply not true. We've seen the rise of populism in Italy, uh, in Sweden with the Sweden Democrats, in Finland most recently. People in the UK are still pretty attached to the idea of Brexit and leaving the European Union, despite many attempts to thwart it from, from the establishment. Uh, the idea that removing Trump from the White House will uh, put an end to ordinary people's desire for an establishment wrecking populist manoeuvre seems to me to be a bit of a fantasy as well. Um, so does populism still have legs? Again, if you look at the example of France, extraordinary events are taking place there right now with the rebellion against Macron and his uh, rushed through pension reforms, which are unpopular and in many people's view, undemocratic. There is still a desire, isn't there, to push back against the ancient regime, the old establishment, and for ordinary people to assert their voices in the public sphere. Yes. And I, I look to uh, the UK and France for hope right now. Right now, as I told you, with the, the crushing of Sanders and his movement by the Democratic Party, there's not much hope for the, the, the kind of populism I like. You know, we have a very distinguished tradition of populism in this country, which had everything to do with agrarian reform in the 19th century opposition to uh, excessive powers uh, uh, by banks uh, and high interest rates and so on and so forth. Anyway, populism has gotten a bad name because it's associated with Viktor Orban and Trump. I am here very much to defend populism. Bernie Sanders is a populist. Uh, Trump has populist uh, aspects to him. And the great fact to know is that between, according to the most reliable uh, polls, between eight and 10 million Obama voters voted for Trump in 2016. They were so horrible, so were disgusted and so disappointed by Obama and by Hillary Clinton, so appalled by Hillary Clinton, that they switched. They said, hey, this guy says he's going to do something about the job they shipped to Mexico or the job they shipped to China or whatever. Uh, this guy stands up to the banks, uh, uh, whatever. He sounds like he's he's going to fight for me. Now, the fact that Trump is a con man and a, a kind of a criminal is is, you know, it's it's too bad. But there was a real crossover between the Sanders people and the Trump people. And I still think that Sanders could have won now that he's been marginalized and, and suffocated. I I'm looking more to France and, and the UK for hope. Uh, I was just in France, and it is astonishing uh, what's happened. It's not about the pension reform anymore. It's about the dictatorial powers 
being used by the by the president uh, Macron to have his way. I mean, I interviewed this centrist aristocrat, uh, uh, Charles de Courson, uh, who actually uh, brought the motion uh, of no confidence after the government invoked Article 49.3, which allowed them to impose the pension reform without without holding a vote. Uh, and de Courson is amazing. I said, what, why, would, why would Macron go to these lengths to have his way when he puts the whole civic and moral health of the country at, at risk? And he goes, he's a Hegelian. <laughs> Who else would say this but a French, uh, a French politician? He has a Hegelian uh, perception of power, a concept of power, and uh, I decide, and it and it and it, it is applied, and and I should be complimented for uh, having gotten power. It doesn't matter how I got it; it's that I have it is what matters, not how I I came to have it. So. I see a real disgust in the, in, among the French now about dictatorial di- dictatorial use of the Constitution by 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 Macron that gives me some hope. Um, but remember that where Brexit succeeded, I mean it's a, it's a vote against Europe. Uh, the French tried. Remember the French voted against the European Constitution in two thousand and five. Uh, by, I don't know, 55 percent. It was a, a solid majority against it. A year later, uh, President Sarkozy uh, simply signs the Treaty, of Li- the Treaty of Lisbon and completely circumvents the vote on, the, on the, the referendum on the Constitution. And now the France is, and one of the reasons that, uh, that uh, Macron uh, uh, wanted to do the pension reform is to keep up with his European partners. That's not something you have to do in the UK anymore. So I, I've always, I've often said, you know, I think I would have been a left winger for Brexit. It's a long <laughs> story. It's complicated what, how I would have justified it. But even if I were against it, uh, I would, uh, I applaud the use of democracy by the British people to do what they want, to do what, what they think is best for themselves. The contempt for the British in this country. Uh, I wrote a piece about this too for the Spectator. It was appalling the condescension uh, that if you voted for Brexit, that practically meant you would vote for Trump if you were given the choice. Um, it's not a great situation in this country. We're not we're not setting a good example for the world in terms of democracy. Uh, I'd say you guys are doing a better job than than we are right now. Rick, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.